All right, hello again. Today is the, the second Sunday in Advent, and we're moving towards the celebration of Christ's birth. And, and we're in an enviable position. We're able to see um, the brokenness around us and look back into time uh, to the birth of our Savior uh, with delight and, and rejoicing. But God's people haven't always had this luxury. Uh, until Christ was born, he was just a promise, albeit a very glorious promise. This week, we're going to go all the way back in Scripture to the very first promise of the birth of Jesus. We go back to Genesis 3. Yes, the, the gospel and the, the promise of the birth of Jesus is found in Genesis chapter 3. Just a little hint as we read through, pay close attention to verse 15. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins 
and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we delight in, uh, in hearing from you. Uh, we've been given new natures. Uh, you've placed your spirit in us. And so um, we've come out of the trees to hear from you this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. You know, this summer I had a learned man who teaches at an international university ask me where I come up with my sermon material. Do I get it out of the daily newspapers, he asked. And and it's true, the daily newspapers and Internet websites have all kinds of news upon which one can preach or teach upon. News of suicide bombers and Ebola outbreaks and news of riots in Ferguson and airbag recalls and, and um, treacherous typhoons. There is so much that one could speak on on any of these current events. But all of these events in our world, especially the ones that are tragic and traumatic, um, full of grief and sorrow, all of these uh, only illustrate the condition that our world is in. They point to the need, not the, not the solution, which is, which is why every Sunday I, I preach from Scripture, because in Scripture uh, we find the answers that we need. You know, the answer to the question, is the world really messed up? Uh, you, you don't need to go to Scripture to find that answer, do you? But to understand the deeper questions of our souls, questions like, how did it end up like this? And is there any remedy? And if so, what might that be? For those answers to those questions, we must turn to Scripture. For there we hear from the one who not only sees the big picture and the big story, but who is, in fact, writing it himself. So today we go back, back to the very beginning, back to, the t- back to where everything went wrong. But more than that, back to the time, to the beginning, where God promises to make everything right through the birth of his son. In Genesis chapter 3, God says, I see what you've done. I see the condition you are now in. And I'm going to fix it all. He says... He will take care of it all with the Christmas child. All right, we don't really read those words in there, right? But, but um, he doesn't use those exact words, but he gives Adam and Eve a promise, a promise sealed in blood of a child to be born who will triumph over evil. That's what verse 15 is all about. We'll study it more, but in verse 15, God promised that some offspring of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. There's a day, God says here, way, way back in the very beginning, where God says, I will fix this. I will solve this problem for you. And it's amazing, isn't it, that 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 this first human couple are given this first good news. 
and, and amazingly, it comes on the heels of, a, of their catastrophic failure. What I hope we see in Adam and Eve's story is that our story is found in their story, too. We didn't ask for it, but that's how the world is. And what we see is who we are as well. But we also see who we can become by God's grace. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to divide our time in these areas. First, we're going to look at the, the test, then the temptation, then the terror, then the tragedy, then the triumph. I know that sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but we're going to move really, really fast. And there's chances are that as I'm going through this passage, there are going to be things you're like, but, but did the serpent once have legs? You know, I don't, you know, there'd be all these questions you may have in your head. If I don't address any of your question or your particular question, see me later. All right. How does that sound? Does that sound good? But there's a lot here. Um, first, the test. Now, the test is actually presented before chapter 3. We have to go back into Genesis 1 and 2 to see where the test is. And in Genesis 1, we're seeing the big picture of how God created all things. Uh, he created heavens and the earth, and he made the, the world that we live on perfect uh, for man and woman to thrive in. Uh, we're told that God made man in his image, male and female. And, and that they were made to commune with God, to always delight in him, to be in his presence. Uh, the people were pure and unhindered, uh, and they lived this way. We, we were told that God uh, commanded this, this first human couple, this great command, uh, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That is, go have kids, have lots of them, create culture, create cities. Uh, do this all un, as, as, as representatives of me, for my glory and for your enjoyment. And, and after that, we see at the, very, at the end of chapter 1, God looked upon it all and, and he said what? It is very good. And then in chapter 2, we, we narrow in on the, the actual uh, creation of the first pair. We see more details. Uh, from some place, we don't know where it is, just something called the land, God formed man using earth, he used dust, and, and he created man, and he, and he made a garden for him in a place called Eden, and he placed Adam in the midst of this paradise. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, we read this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the test. God says you can eat from any tree, any tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stay away, for on that day you will surely die. What we see here is God has given man everything he needs in order to thrive and to live and to enjoy this creation that God has made and given to him to, to steward. But will he be satisfied? Will he fully trust in his creator? We aren't told what God will give him or them if they pass the test, right? We don't know that. I have some ideas. You can talk to me later. Uh, but we are told uh, that the failure will result in death. Now, a lot of questions, but certainly one of the questions that, that come to mind is this. What kind of God would do this? What kind of God would put the creature that he loves to such a test, a test that could end in, in death? We'll wrestle with this thought. If in creating man... He made us incapable of disobeying, then we would be inhuman. We would be like machines. Or consider C.S. Lewis's words on this point from the book Mere Christianity. It's on our book table if you want a copy. Here's what he says. 
If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight, compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. Tests are also good, right? Not just for the test giver, but for the one who takes the test. Think of the competence and the skill that a fifth grader has when she gets an A on a math test. Uh, competence and skill that she is able to use later in life. At least that's what we tell them. <laughs> uh, don't use your calculator, right? Um, so to this tree of good and evil, what's this tree about? Does God not want human beings to know good and evil? Was it God's desire never to let this sweet little innocent pair never even have an inkling of what evil is? No, I don't think that's the case. The problem that we see in Genesis 3 isn't that Adam and Eve have a knowledge of good and evil, but the vantage point from which they have this knowledge. What do I mean? Well, we know from this passage that God himself has a knowledge of good and evil. He's pure and holy. He's not defiled by it. So it can't be a bad thing to have knowledge of good and evil. The thing with God, though, is that his is a, is a knowledge from above. His is a knowledge of good and evil that has mastery over its subject. He is not tainted by the power of evil. On the other hand, Adam and Eve come to have a knowledge of good and evil from below. It masters them. They fall into its grip and it infiltrates them. Let me describe it this way. Imagine a medical doctor who is an expert in in Ebola. He has a mastery over Ebola. He's able to treat patients and master the disease in their lives. The Ebola patient, on the other hand, has a knowledge of the disease, but one in which the disease has mastery over him. It has taken over his body. Do you see the distinction there? So I would like to think that if Adam and Eve would have passed the test, they would have gained some knowledge of good and evil. They would have known the treachery of evil or the deceitfulness of lies, but they would not have been mastered by it. So that's the test. God gives the first pair this covenant test of faithfulness. In love, God made Adam and Eve and gave them all that they needed to flourish and to thrive. Now, Would they trust their God? Would they listen and obey just to obey? Would they love him freely as they are freely loved by him? That's the test. Now for the temptation. Now, (laughs) seemingly out of nowhere, a snake wanders onto the scene. Where did he come from? What does he represent? You know, uh, Moses in this passage doesn't give us a whole lot, does he? We can look elsewhere in scripture to pick up more details on this, but we do know a few things. We do know that the Hebrew word here is just the regular Hebrew word for snake. But we know this isn't a regular snake, right? What gives it away? It talks. <laughs> That's a dead clue that this is not your normal run-of-the-mill snake. 
snakes don't normally talk. And some people today, they're like, see, I, that's why I just can't believe this whole story. A snake talk and all this and that. Well, there's one other instance in the Bible, in the book of Numbers, where Moses records as well, that a donkey talks, all right? Um, this is one time in the sermon when I get to use the word ass, all right? So, um, you know, this donkey speaks. Uh, and and what we, when we read the, uh, when we read the, the account, though, what is it that causes the donkey to speak? It's the hand of God upon the mouth of Balaam's donkey uh, that opens it up to speak God's words. Now, here a serpent is speaking. He's not speaking God's words, is he? No, he is speaking as the words of the enemy, the one whom Jesus said is the father of all lies, who is none other than the devil or Satan himself. Now, the enemy of God tempts Eve and and then tempts Adam through her. Now, you could spend many sermons just talking about these temptations. We're not going to spend a a whole lot on the temptations here, Um, but a couple points. What we see here is the serpent assaults God, and in so doing, drives a wedge between uh, Adam and Eve and their creator. First, the serpent assaults God's words, and he twists it to cast doubt. Look at verse 1. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's sowing seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. It's something on the lines of, what kind of God is he anyway? Who does he think he is? Now, Eve's response shows us that she has, at least in some way, taken the bait. She does a better job of of restating God's command, but she adds to it. She says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't prohibit touching the tree. Why would she say such a thing? Well, commentators point out that Eve has already taken the bait. And she, in saying that, is is showing that she has begun to pity herself. Like a child who cannot go to a friend's house, how that child starts crying out, we never do anything fun in this house. In the same way, Eve is exaggerating the commands of God. Next, the serpent assaults the goodness of God. We see this in three ways. First, he assaults God's truthfulness. He flat out says in verse 4, you will not surely die. He contradicts the word of God. And in a sense, he's true. They do not die that day. But there is a death that takes place that is far more insidious. There is a spiritual death that now has come upon Adam and Eve. Spiritually, they have become dead. They have been cut off from the soul-nourishing creator who made them, gave them life, and sustained them. Second, the serpent assaults God's love and goodwill. We see this in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. He's insinuating that, that God doesn't have their best interest in mind. Tim Keller writes this. He says, it's like saying, if you obey God, you won't be happy. This is a big lie that lives in the heart of every sin and every sinner. He goes on to say, this is always the root of any particular disobedience. We don't believe that God is for us. We believe that we have to obey God to please him, but we do not believe his authority really serves us. Third, the serpent even assaults God's sufficiency and his character when he says in verse 7, well, you'll be like God. The serpent is saying that, that God's motivation is to keep us down, that God is insecure, he's envious. He doesn't want you to grow to your full potential. He's saying you really don't need God in your life to really live. Many people have bought into that today, haven't we? 
We don't, we don't need to believe in God or to love and honor to serve him in order to have an enjoyable life. Then in verse 6, we read the woman looked at the fruit. She saw it. It looked delicious. Even though she has all kinds of other good, delicious-looking fruit in the cupboard. But she goes and she eats of it. And then she gave some to her husband and he ate. And then true spiritual death came upon them. Something that they had never felt before now becomes what they will feel for the rest of their lives. Sin has entered into God's good creation and terror has befell that first couple. It's the third thing we look at. In verse 7, Adam and Eve didn't die in a physical sense right away. They died in a spiritual death. They're cut off from the living God who made them. And it says that their eyes were opened. Satan was right. Their eyes were opened. But, but they became knowledgeable of good and evil. But not as those who have mastery over it. Their knowledge was from below. They've been touched by it and defiled by it. Their bodies ache with it. Now, verse 7 tells us that their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Uh, you know, my, one of my seminary professors, Jack Collins, makes a note on this. He says, big revelation that was. <laughs> we read in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, and man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the word shame isn't used in our chapter 3 here, but that's what's taken place. Before they were naked and unashamed. Now they are naked and full of shame. Adam and Eve are are terrified. What do they do in response? They try to cover themselves. They go and they pull out some fig leaves and they sew them together to make loincloths. Their attempt is really quite feeble. They try as best they can. But the solution to their problem is out of their hands. They can't remedy what has been done. Have you ever tried to put toothpaste back in a tube of toothpaste? (laughs) That's what's happened. It's been unleashed in their lives and in all of creation, and they cannot, they do not have the power to undo it, to fix it. They're terrified. Now for the tragedy. Adam and Eve find themselves in a world now that's changed forever, and they themselves are full of guilt and shame, like a dam that that, uh, above a city that as it gives way and it breaks the waters flood the city below so too sin has broken in to god's good creation and flooded all of the world including adam and eve their tragedy has become our tragedy and we see what that is in the remaining verses now in verse eight they hear a sound in the garden and on any other day this would be what to them a joyful sound it's the lord He's here again, just like yesterday and the day before. It's in the cool of the day. Uh, most likely it's just the afternoon. It's when the sun starts setting and the winds start picking up and it's a little bit cooler out. They hear the sound of the Lord. And what would they have done in days past? They would have ran to the Lord. Lord God, look what we've discovered today. Look what we planted today. Look at what we've learned about each other today. On any other day, they would have ran to the Lord, but not this day. Instead, they do what? They hide from the Lord. Now, you and I, we do this all the time, but to them, for them, this was something they'd never experienced before. Guilt and shame. 
and 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 a soul that's been severed from its creator and now wishes to run and to hide. You see what God does, though? He seeks them out. In their sin and in their rebellion, right after this traumatic catastrophe, he seeks them. He cries out to them. Do you think that God didn't know where Adam was? Of course God knows where Adam is. But God speaks to him and says, where are you? And then in verse 10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Once again, God knows everything that Adam has done. Why would he ask him this question? To, to rub the, like the nose of a puppy in its business when it made a mistake? No. Why would he do this? Why would he ask him what he's done? So that Adam could come clean. He's given him a chance to, to confess. He's given him a chance to, to, to come to him to find healing and comfort and protection and a, and, and a, and a solution. The amazing thing is, Adam never confesses. And yet God is still gracious to him. What does Adam do instead? He blames. That woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit night. But Adam, you ate. You ate, Adam. The woman doesn't do much better. She blames the serpent. She doesn't see her own culpability, and neither does Adam. That's how the world is today. You know, if people do believe in some deity above, it's some sort of watered-down, sissy deity who, of course, is happy with whatever you do. There's no guilt or shame. God is like Santa Claus. He's just there to help you out if you need a little help, if you need a little boost of energy, a little pick-me-up. But what Genesis 3 teaches us is that sin has entered into creation. Its effects are pervasive. We are all left guilty. Though rarely do we admit our own guilt. Instead, we'll admit everybody else's guilt around us. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that one of the problems with the news and preaching from the news is news can be like trees that we hide behind. Look at all those people over there. Look how bad they are. Can you believe what the people are doing in Ferguson? I would never be like that. News can be like trees that we hide behind. A place for us to blame others. Do not look at our own sin and our need of a savior. In our story, we see this. Adam and Eve, though they do not admit their guilt, they do not confess their sin, they are guilty before their God and their creator. And so too all of us. God judges them. He gives this curse. 
curse is in verses 15 through 19. First to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. We're going to skip the serpent for now. We're going to go to the woman. I don't have a whole lot of time for this. Uh, I mean, there's so much in here. But uh, verse 16, he says, childbirth is going to be painful. And you're going to have great conflict with your husband. That's true. This is what I hear about the childbirth part. I know that from above, not from below. Kind of like, I have knowledge of it, but not as one who's done it. All right. So anyway, let's just play on what we talked about earlier. Anyway, uh, but I do know the conflict part. I've seen it in my own marriage. Right. And then to the man. Man, his curse is more than one verse. It's three of them. Verse 17, 18 and 19. God says your work is going to suck. There'll be joy in it. You'll find some hope in it. But it's going to be hard. And when you put in 100% effort, you might get back 80% reward. You will not know if you'll have success coming or not. It's going to be difficult and hard. There's going to be other people fighting for what you have in the workplace. Adam, this is your curse. And man, we admit, this is our curse. Why is there often conflict between husbands and wives? Because men love their work more than they love their wives, and they find their joy in it, and their wives are fed up with it. (laughs) And there's conflict. The desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That word desire there, if you think it's a good desire, it's not. Look in Genesis 4. God speaks to Cain and says, watch out, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to devour you. What's taking place here isn't good. It's a tragedy. We're so immersed in it, though, we, we, it, doesn't, it, it just, just becomes the air we breathe and the water we swim in. Well, of course work is hard. Well, of course relationships are difficult. Well, it wasn't always that way. And it's not how it's supposed to be. And when it's left in our own hands, we can't do anything about it. Oh, we might get a little bit better at relating. We, I saw the yesterday, it was a football game. They're commenting on this coach. He's, he's gotten a little bit better at coaching. They said, you know, look what he's doing. He used to just yell at his players as soon as they made a bad play. Now they pointed out, well, gosh, he's getting better as a coach. He now walks and takes a deep breath and he, it looks like he's counting to ten. And then he went and he sat. Then he went and he sat, not even near his players. He just sat like this. Maybe you saw the game. And then he gets up and talks to his players. But the anger's still there. The root is still there. We can get better at doing this human thing, but our solution is not in our hands. I'm a little off tangent here. Sorry about that. Ponder this, though. Consider this point. What was the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve before the fall? Fill the earth. <laughs> All right? Uh, be fruitful and multiply. What's that? Childbirth. Fill the earth and subdue it. What's that? That's work. The, the two things that God had given to man and woman to flourish in is now the, 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 the recipient of curses. Do you see that? That's a tragedy. If anybody ever says, what's a tragedy? Point to Genesis 3. But there's also a triumph you must hear about. Verse 15. 
God says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity. Enmity is hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. There will be hostility between between Eve and the serpent, between some offspring, her her descendants and the, the descendants of the serpent. Now, there's a couple ways we can read this, both of which apply here. One is that he's talking of all the families of the earth and of all the families of the earth. There will be those whose father is of the serpent and whose those whose mother is of Eve. Remember, Adam and Eve have a number of children, right? Uh, Genesis four, one son kills the other. All right. Uh, but then there's Seth. And as you read through scripture, what do we see? Seth is descendants uh, from the Seth, Seth's uh, uh, offspring. We get Abraham. The man of promise and out of and from Abraham's offspring, we end up with David, the, the king of victory. And, and out of David's offspring, we get to where we get to to Christ. Two Sundays I'm preaching on the on the on the on the, the family line of of Jesus. It's really remarkable. But what we see is that there is a, there's two families on earth. Those who belong to God by his grace and his mercy and who belong to this offspring of the woman. And those whose father is Satan, the father of lies. There's two, two, two families. You belong in one or the other. But there's another way to look at this, too. And I think it's a far more important way for us this morning. The Hebrew word zarah, which is where we get seed or offspring, it's in the singular. There is a singular offspring here. Uh, God says, he shall bruise your head and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, the word to bruise here is to strike a blow. Now, the blow on the heel is it's not life threatening. Right. But a, a, a strike to one's head. Cannon will kill them. And that's what God has in mind here. There will be a son to come who, though struck on the heel, will not die. But what he will do to you is he will strike you and kill you. The battle is, of course, between uh, a representative of God and a representative of Satan. This, of course, points us where to the cross. What happens on the cross? The devil, the Satan attacks Christ. He thinks he has a victory. He dies. But then but not really. He's given what turns out to be a blow to the heel. But then on the cross, what takes place? God's enemy is struck down. He's been dealt a death blow. Uh, Satan's not dead yet, but he is he's dying. Uh, He is in some senses in intensive care. He's still alive. He still has influence in this world, but he has been won over. Many places in the Bible you can turn to that speak of this. Just Hebrews 2, 14 helps us see this. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he, that's Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is good news. (laughs) This is good news. In, in pronouncing this curse upon 
upon Satan. God's intent was that Adam and Eve would hear. They would hear this promise in their brokenness, in their nakedness, in their guilt and in their shame. They would hear that God has planned to fix what they have done. God is going to triumph over their failure. My friends, in the cross, that's what God does for each and every one of us who turns in faith to Christ. He triumphs over our failure, over our sin, over our shame, over our guilt. This theologians call this the proto-evangelion, the, the first good news. And it's in its most basic form. The, the recipients, Adam and Eve, they don't know how it's going to unfold. They don't know all these stories of Abraham and King David. They don't know about Moses and the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices. They just know that God has a way to fix it. He's promised to do it. One last thing I want to bring to your attention. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Please, please take note of what God has done here. Adam and Eve, in their feeble attempt to cover their guilt and their shame, they went out and did what? They plucked leaves and they sewed them together to, to make loincloths. What's wrong with that picture? What happens to leaves? Well, they, as soon as they start dying, they dry up, they shrivel up, they fall apart. Adam and Eve would have to spend the rest of their lives continually working to cover their guilt and their shame, except for the God who loves them and made them and saw what they did, sees them in their guilt and their shame. And what does he do? He spills blood. He kills an animal. The very first sacrifice we ever read of. To take skins to give them a permanent, lasting covering of their guilt and shame. Which points us where again? To the cross. Where not just some random animal, but God's very own son died and spilled his blood so that we may be forever, perpetually, perfectly, powerfully covered. In our guilt and shame. Scripture says that that Jesus gives us a robe of righteousness to cover us. And this is not done by our work. It's done by his grace towards us. Did you also see how, how God's grace continues to come at the end of this passage? It's He has such great concern for Adam. He, he kicks him out of the garden. Why? He's afraid he's going to eat from the tree of life and be stuck forever and ever in that fallen, miserable state. God is so concerned for him that that he he doesn't even finish his sentence. Did you notice that in in, in verse uh, 22? Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. I'm not even going to finish the sentence. I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen. I'm going to put an angel there and a sword. Not because I don't love Adam and Eve, not because I don't want them to experience garden-like life, because I'm afraid of what would happen to them. Until my promised child comes, I need to 
protect them from living forever in this fallen state. And of course, if you know the book of Revelation, you know that the tree of life is 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 once again seen in the age to come. And it's it's it leaves are for the healing of of God's people and God's people will eat from it for for all eternity. But right now, in this day and age, it's not to be eaten from. My friends, this Christmas, between now and this Christmas day, there's going to be a lot of news in the newspapers and on the Internet sites. Some things will make you laugh, you know. Uh, some of your friends will post things on Facebook of little dogs that dance silly or something, right? We all have that one friend, right? Or maybe you're that one friend. <laughs> uh, but there will be some stories that, that just break our hearts and cause us to grieve. Things that haven't happened yet that are going to fill us with sorrow, or at least they should. But they only illustrate the problem in this world. The world is broken and full of broken and sinful people. And so as you hear those stories, be reminded of the promise that we've read about today. That God, in the instant that sin entered in the world, remedied it with his son and the promise of his coming. We're about to wrap up. How do we how do we respond this morning? Some of you, some of you are hiding behind the trees. You're far from God. You don't even see yourself as someone who needs a savior. It's proof of what we've read here is true that there is an enemy who deceives us and makes us to think that we're okay just as we are. I encourage you to Turn to Christ. Allow him to, to cover you with what he's done for all of his people. Others here, they're probably quick to admit, well, I'm not perfect. I'm not the person I know I should be. And yet they're trying to remedy the situation themselves. They're trying to, well, I'll just be a little bit better person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit nicer to a husband. <laughs> you know, I'm going to not work so hard at work. I'm, I'm going to try to be better. Please understand this. If that's you, you're really just making loincloths out of fig leaves. You're going to continually do that work and it's never going to be satisfying and ultimately you're going to be left short. Turn in faith and receive God's gift of Christ this Christmas. For the rest of us, we need to meditate on this reality. What kind of God do we have? A God who, at the instant hell was unleashed on earth, promised to fix it all. And not just promise to fix it, but to even heal the people and be gracious to the ones who broke it. If you're like me, what would you have done? Maybe you, you would have just squashed them in an instant, right? I'm like that coach. I need to take a time out, count to ten most of the times. I need to remind myself to be gracious. But not so our God. Grace flows from him. God doesn't need to remind himself to be gracious. He is gracious. This is the God that loves us and has freed us. Tell me if that doesn't give you joy and delight and cause you to rejoice in how he has clothed you with righteousness. I just love that picture of God gathering Adam and Eve and giving them skins to cover them. 
like a father pulling in a child who's done wrong and puts his arms around them and says, I will fix this. I will make this better. Here, put this on. And he says to them, he gathers him in and he says, someday, someday I will fix all of this. That's the God we love and serve. Let's pray. We thank you that you continue to speak to us. I confess how foolish I am for constantly needing to be reminded of your grace. But then again, you're gracious and you do that. I pray for your people here that we would love you more, that we would draw near to you more, that we would trust you more, that we would be transformed more by you, to be the people you've called us to be by your grace through your Son, and filled with your Spirit. Amen.